you already know what the right thing to do is. You don't need anybody to tell you. Whether it turns out to be what you wanted or not is immaterial. The mind locks itself into this tapestry of representation. You're microdosing honesty. Well, what, did, what did Plato call it? Carving reality close to the joints. You're trying to get it to where you're strong enough to bear the realest possible story. All boundaries in consciousness are, are made of fear, fundamentally. The closer you can align yourself with, with nothingness, paradoxically brings out sort of the truest and most authentic expression of who you are. This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. My guest today is Gabe, aka Vivid Void on Twitter. He's a writer and a coach. We talk about inferiority, art, spirituality, courage, fear, alignment with the void, representations of reality, exposure therapy, quality, and more. Please enjoy. You end every day uh, with the same tweet and a different piece of artwork. And that tweet always says, you are not inferior to anyone. Why is that me message so important to share every day and to reinforce? Three reasons. Um, the first is that um, a couple of years ago, I was in recovery from, from post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the um, uh, sort of major symptoms of that for me was this kind of feeling of being of being very small and having, having been, I think I, I just took this, this kind of powerful sort of hit to my self image and my self esteem. I, uh, you know, coming out of like a, a difficult relationship with a woman and I'm questioning my, my manhood and I'm questioning all this stuff and feeling a lot of inferiority, a lot of difficulty with that. And, um, so I started posting it to myself, you know, when I had, I don't know, 600 followers or something, just, just like a nightly reminder to me. Um, and then, uh, over time, actually, I think one of my, one of my friends came up with the idea of like adding some little emojis to it. And then pretty soon, um, I just, I started, I, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have like a different piece of art or something? And, and so I started adding the art. Um, and then, and then over time, I think at least for me, the meaning has evolved in, in, and there's a couple more reasons that I, that I keep publishing it. And, um, one of them is that just, just kind of researching people who are extremely online, just kind of learning about that. Um, a persistent feeling of inferiority is one of the major ways that depression manifests for people who are online constantly. And I think that that probably has a lot to do with comparing yourself to sort of like, you know, galaxy brain takes on Twitter or, or impossibly edited people on Instagram or, you know, whatever right. that is. Um, so that seemed like a good message to keep putting out there. And then, and then the last one that I, I, I just kind of figured out recently is, is it's a, it's a slightly different way to say an old, an old Zen proverb, which is if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. And the idea of that is if you, if you think that somebody else out there is the Buddha and it's not you, it's not right. What you're looking out onto the world. If you, if you're putting your power, your agency, your, your, um, divinity, and you're projecting that onto other people and saying, oh, I got to somehow get it back from them, you know, um, you're just totally missing it. Right. And so this was, this was master Lin Chi. He was like a really insane Chinese patriarch. He was like, you know, if you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. If you meet the Arhat, kill the Arhat, you know, all this kind of stuff. Just like, cause it's you, you know? And, and in a way, what I'm trying to tell people when I say you're not inferior to anyone is like, you're not inferior to the Buddha. You're not inferior. You're the, you are the saints. You're the masters. You're the, you're the great historical figures to somebody a thousand years from now. You know, it's like the, the time that stretches in between us and the people that we sort of automatically venerate. Like we're going to get that someday. So like, you're not inferior to them. You're just more recent, you know? Um, so start conducting yourself that way. It's incredibly powerful. And I'm not sure if you've done a thread or post elsewhere explaining why it is you talk about this concept of inferiority, but the way you described it here, uh, I already had my own lens or interpretation to it, but that made it, uh, that much more impactful. The, oh, the other piece, yeah, the, the other piece, which it sounds like developed organically that you do with that post is you always share a beautiful piece of artwork. Um, 
why have you landed on that and what is kind of the role of art and beauty whether you see that coupled with this this uh this kind of pushing back against inferiority or just a second layer to it that uh nicely accompanies it why why include that art piece it's a good question that i don't have a good answer for and that's fine um i think there was i think i um just kind of saw i've always kind of had an interest in these aesthetic accounts that that curate really beautiful artworks and some of them um some of them just just do this fantastic job and you almost come to like learn their their curatorial style you almost start personifying it like you know them a little bit or like you see it you see a piece of artwork and you're like i should get a hold of that guy because he this is him you know um and that's always been pleasurable to me, just just to see that. And and um, I I don't see uh, any kind of connection between like a beautiful piece of Western art and Zen in, in or or Buddhism or or anything like that. I, I do think to the extent I think it's like it's prior to both of those things, in the extent that like great art is is produced by a spiritual practice. It's like a, it's a byproduct of a spiritual practice in, in the exact same way that like Buddhism is a byproduct of Buddha's spiritual practice, right? Like it's, it's this thing that was left in the wake. It's this, it's this, re, it's this reproduction. It's this, but it's not the thing itself, you know? Yeah. It's a, and it's so an maybe of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, can you, can you say more about that? Because most people wouldn't liken art to a uh as being a byproduct of a spiritual practice and maybe that just comes down to definitions or terminologies and the evolution there within but uh why do you see those things as much more tightly coupled or even one in the same whereas others uh, might not um as far as i'm concerned and and I have a, you know, a, a little bit of education as a writer and, and some experience there. And, and, and this is how it's worked for me. And, um, I think most people are familiar with the idea that when you're producing your best art, something's moving through you. It's not you who are doing it. I mean, it's okay. It's you, right. But you're a vessel for it. You're, you're channeling something that's, that's really much greater and much it's beyond you. And I, I think it's when you're when you're close to that, that kind of true self that is, that doesn't have any of the ego corrupt and that does just channel the, the creative energy, um, that's available in that moment to you. Um, I think that's genius. I think that's like when, and, and of course, you know, I mean, there's grades of genius, Michelangelo's, you know, whatever, you know, but like, but a child making macaroni art and wholly absorbed in it is is 100% in their genius exactly like Michelangelo was and i think all great art is produced in that and out of that place um so so if if a spiritual practice is as i believe kind of the using it's kind of the the art of using your imagination to get as close to reality as possible then um, then art is this byproduct of being aligned with reality, of being aligned with whatever the real is producing in this moment without any um, attempt to control or resist or, or shape or anything like that. It just, it's just, I keep doing this thing and it's just what, is what it feels like, but um, it's just flow. It's just, it's what happens after something has flowed through. That, that reflects my experience, I think, uh, more recently over the course of like the last year, I've started to realize the more quote unquote authentic I am or in touch with the source, uh, the more things seem to flow naturally and flow through me, the less anxiety is, the better the output. Um, and yet I try to reconcile that also with you look at maybe some of the masters in their respective fields who point to things that you might say, uh, aren't authentic or are rooted in kind of negative conditioning or behavior. So you could take somebody uh, like, like Michael Jordan, for example. Um, it looks like something's working through him, but also it looks like what's fueling him is, is anger and competition and maybe things people would point to as not great things. 
are those just exceptions or anomalies uh or is there why, more why aren't oh sorry go ahead no i was gonna say or or is, do i just have too binary a view of this and actually those are uh authentic things as well I, those are absolutely authentic things yeah why why i so i i don't i think that the idea that um, you can go through your life without ever feeling anger is crazy. Um, I don't think there's any spiritual practice that can remove a part of being human from you. Um, I think what it does, at least in my experience of things and the way that I practice it, um, sort of the idea, maybe the Buddhist idea, it's even, actually, I guess it's belongs to Indian philosophy broadly, but this idea that of lo locating emptiness in things or seeing the emptiness in things feels nihilistic the first time you encounter the concept, you know, but what it's, what it's really saying is, is not that there isn't a meaning, but that there's no fixed eternal meaning that says it has to be this one thing. What it says is that it's spacious. It can, there's, there's room for creativity there. You know, and so, so a, a spiritual practice uh, should be showing you creative ways to be angry and it should be showing you creative ways to use anger. Should you use it to hurt anyone? Well, not outside of very specific moral circumstances, right? Because it's bad for you and it's bad for somebody else. Like it's not, it's just unhealthy. There's no reason for it any more than you want to go, you know, lick battery acid or something like why would you do it it doesn't make any sense um you know but like in in the case of of michael jordan i mean first of all the guy works with phil jackson who's like a zen master if, if right. ever there was one uh and second of all like yeah yeah he he's very obviously driven by a need to dominate he's very obviously driven by um by a lot of anger and by a lot of like very competitive spirit so were so was uh, Miyamoto Musashi, who's like a you know the the national character of Japan, a 16th century swordsman and, and enlightened. Um, you know the idea of it's if you have a a pure, authentic, creative expression of whatever's coming up in the moment, and and you and you can express it in a way that is healthy and that doesn't cause people to suffer unnecessarily that it doesn't matter what's coming through right anger can be really energizing like um some of you know disgust can be really helpful like fear can be really helpful like you know it's you know fear is the mind killer until there's a bear you know and then get out of there like that's important you know uh, i think what's important is that you're not resisting these natural expressions or, or you're turning these natural expressions towards unhealthy ends, you know, and that's, and I there's another parallel to art. Right. I think the resistance or the suppression or the channeling of that towards uh, negative or evil ends is maybe the, the point of confusion. And yet it still seems uh, at a surface level, when people talk about the dissolution of the ego, you think all things that arise through the ego as well um, are things to be, I don't know what the right word here is, maybe not ignored or suppressed or controlled, but you don't think about channeling those emotions as an enlightened behavior uh, that seems like beneath you. So still trying to reconcile how it is that you allow those things to be emergent and flow through you, but that also fits in line with uh, not having an ego or sense of self. I don't, are, the, are those I not don't, byproducts of, of the, the self or the ego? I don't, I don't know this. We're like, we're like, um, we're playing in territory right now. That's real difficult because on, on, we can, uh, Western ego versus Eastern ego. We could ask something like, uh, what is the purpose of a life that's sat as a stone Buddha? you know, having done nothing, having acted on nothing. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure there's any Buddhist out there that's like, oh yeah, really just, you know, spend your whole life staring at the wall. Like, I don't think that's the case. You know, I don't think that's what Buddha advocated for. I don't think that's what anybody did. Um, 
I could say something totally crazy and be like, you know, when, when, when the Mahayana project is complete and everyone is enlightened and the entire thing lets go, what's, what's to say Shiva's not going to be like, what a trip and just start dreaming another division like all over again. You know, it's like, um, what's the point? I mean, I, you know, that's crazy we don't, we can't know these things. There's no certainty, like certainty will, will kill the, mm -hmm. the ability to be present and, and, and be there. I think you can, you can feel it here. You know, if I consent to compete with somebody, um, I have a brilliant time doing that. I love, I'm so competitive. I don't want anybody to suffer, you know, but if like, if we risk an injury and somebody, you know, breaks their ankle when we're, when we are competing over something, have we done something evil? No, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, if, if I, I'm temporarily letting myself um, indulge this desire to like be better than someone else at something? Am I confusing that for an idea that in some reified way, I'm better than them forever? Like that's an ego problem mm -hmm. right now. Right. I'm telling a story that says, you know, rather than in this moment, I got over that line faster than you did. And it doesn't feel like glory. Um, right. and then when the glory is gone, it's gone and that's it. And that's okay. That resonates. Yeah. That resonates. I think we're a lot of what we're brushing up against here is this notion that, uh, and you've written a fair amount about this, that truth is always paradoxical. And so I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a, in the, my line of questioning, I'm attempting to resolve the, this paradox that, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe can't be, or shouldn't be resolved. Um, and you've also said that the more of it, uh, the more of it you're strong enough to handle, the more inherent sacredness of everything reveals itself, which I think is beautiful. One of the paradoxes that you write about that you kind of just alluded to with the, the Buddha who sits there and does nothing is this notion of uh, do nothing, seek wisdom. Mm. How, how do you do both of those things? My, this, that, that's a saying of my mentors, if I didn't, if I didn't mark that down correctly. Do I think nothing, you, I think seek you did. I'm, I'm attributing it to you, but I think you did. Okay, all right. Um, I'm sure I've, I've accidentally stolen many things that he said and, and called them my own. but. Um, the idea there, I think, is was he said that to me constantly um, because he was trying to interrupt this obsessive compulsive habit that I had to, to immediately see something, apprehend it conceptually, and then act on it as though I already knew the right answer and was already acting wisely and I wasn't just knee-jerk doing something out of anxiety, which I was, mm. you know. And so he would say, do nothing seek wisdom and, or he would say first do nothing. Right. So do nothing was not the end unto itself. Right. It was first open up a gap in between stimulus and response. Let it cook, mm -hmm. you know, give your cortex as a chance to weigh in before you just, you know, uh, let, you know, let your animal brain drive, you know? Right. Um, and so I, I would say, you know, there's, that's one way of looking at it. Another, another way of looking at it is, um, I think your brain needs a rest. You know, if you, when you meditate, uh, um, you're not giving it any new inputs and you give it time to process all the monkey stuff that it's currently working on. And then you give it time to process the deeper stuff that it's working on. And then it kind of finishes all that stuff and it goes, it's good. And I think that's good. You know, it's even active at night. So when else are you going to get this chance to, to calm it down? You know, right. And I've heard uh, these, I, I don't know that this is true or not. I've seen, I've seen like one, maybe a study, or I think it was anthropology. And I, I give anthropology about as much shrift as I do like psychology. Um, which is like, you know, it, it, maybe it points at something, like maybe not, we'll see. Um, but, but supposedly like pre-modern human beings spend three or four days squat, three or four hours a day squatting on their haunches, staring at nothing, doing nothing. So just meditating, just naturally, spontaneously. Um, I know like Albert Einstein, who, who I, I don't think, you know, ever went to India or learned how to meditate or anything like that. He, he built like a little raft or he would build like lots of these right. little rafts 
And he would like paddle out onto the water and need to be rescued by the Coast Guard and all this stuff. But he wasn't doing anything out there. He was just like paddling his little boat. And I think that was his way of turning his brain off um, and kind of and finding this trance or finding this kind of transcendent rest. Um, I got a fighter jet going up. The point of that being, I, I just think that I think the brain needs rest. I think I think that the, where I, the brain really benefits from rest. And there's a whole bunch that, that we could say here, too, about, about Zen theology and the void and, and relative nothingness and absolute nothingness and, and sort of the closer you can align yourself with, with nothingness paradoxically brings out sort of the truest and most authentic expression of who you are. I don't know why, you know? I mean, Keiji Nishitani wrote 1,200 words or 1,200 pages about why this happens and still didn't get that close. Um, but it's true. You know, and so there's something about do you know do nothing seek wisdom doesn't explain itself, but it's but the, but it's self evident. Hmm. Let's let's get into uh, this notion of the void. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with you, your handle is Vivid Void. Mm -hmm. um, you've written about it a fair amount in your work, but I think there's a, a number of interpretations people might have, and and maybe you do use the phrase in a couple different ways. Uh, wh what exactly is the void in your in your own words or as you use it well um if i wish i had a little bell to ring or something um the void is um is what you are it's it's absolutely nothing that's what the true self is. There's, it's nothing. Um, which is to say, none of this, you know, crude matter is, is what we fundamentally are. It's what we hold in our awareness. And, and this has been said so often at this, at this point as to be a cliche, but, you know, what we are is, is pure unblemished awareness, you know, um, you don't, you know, it's kind of, kind of, you know, Lawrence wrote this book on having no head, right? You, you don't, people think they're walking around with a head and you don't, you have a pink blob right here, right? You have like, you can see, you know, the eye cavity right here, you know, that's all you've ever seen, you know, that plus representations, that plus mirrors. Here come the F-35s again. <laughs> I didn't realize I was near like a national guard base or something. Um, when you are not representing the world in speech, in thought, in music, in expression, in art, when you're to tell a story about something necessarily edits out so many details that it can no longer be the thing itself. It's a representation, and any you know, and, and the mind locks itself into this tapestry of representation, to where it can't it can't understand anything outside of it because it needs represent. It thinks it needs representation, but there's this moment in between thoughts that can that can grow and grow and grow and grow, and and it's and it's sure that Buddhists call it suchness and whatever it's not just an eastern thing you know um proust used to yearn for a life of pure sensation you know rilke talks about about this life of pure sensation or this realm of pure sensation it's what all the poets were after you know it's what so so many of, of the most sensitive um spirits have been after is this is this experience of the world but how do you how do you talk about you know, the, the caress of a breeze on your cheek. Like, how do you really talk about that? Cause that's not what it is, right? What it is, is, is this thing that you just can't, you can't really get to, you can't ever get to it. And it's that, it's that reality. That's always just beyond what you can speak. That's, that's void. Not in the sense of there's nothing there, right? There's a great, one of my friends, uh, itinerant fog on twitter has this great meme where he says you know uh um 
what people think the void is, right? And it's like a black screen and it's like what the void actually is. And it's just like a, it's like a picture of a mountain valley, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, it's, it's what you're seeing, what you're experiencing and all of your senses all at once without you representing it. And yet we still need to participate in this world and in society and humanity where we use representations to communicate back and forth with one another. Uh, and, and in effect, that's what any artist or genius practitioner is attempting to do is kind of translate, uh, or, or reflect the void through their chosen medium. I, I suspect, uh, how do we kind of move back and forth? between these places of like pure experience and, and representation. Um, it's always been a tro- like the desire is to be pure experience. And yet there is still a need to, uh, to use these lenses or construct. Yeah. There's no, there's the fact that we, that we can experience life and and existence outside of representation is what enables representation and, and, and representation, mm. you know, enables. Maybe, I'm not sure, maybe this precedes representation in the same way that like a bird doesn't, you know, use any words. And I don't think that, right. I don't, you know, maybe they're, what they're chirping does represent some internal state, you know. Um, but But I don't, I think that the idea of wanting to be sort of eternally in eternity, like, um, like I'm snapped out of profane time and I'm always in the sacred land where it's always afternoon and I'm eating the lotus and, and everything's always good and I never suffer and, and all of that stuff. Um, maybe it exists, you know, um, I do believe there's like radical reductions of, of suffering that, that people can, can achieve, but I, I don't, I don't think that, um, I think people have been real hard on themselves that they're expecting to like be in the present moment, free of, of any representation, free of any thought, uh, anytime soon, or if they're not, uh, in a mountain monastery somewhere meditating four or five hours a day, because that's the shortcut, you know? Um, yeah, I yeah. think that I think that you need some sacred time to sanctify the profane. You know, you need some time in the void to make the profane bearable. Otherwise, your mind resists it totally unconsciously and you you end up a mess of defense mechanisms. Fascinating. It's a lot. To I, I think I, yeah, I th- I think either you you take responsibility for the sacralization of the world, or it's done it's done for you and not skillfully. Mm. That is is that conditioning effectively? May well, that's a different thing. Conditioning is, I I would say in this case, it's more like, um, there's not the human mind cannot. Um, unaided, unconsciously, just experience reality directly until it's strong enough. And, and when it comes into contact with reality too soon, right, it forms like a scab and that's ego. Right. That's and that's not my word. metaphor. That's, that's Freud's. Um, but any any time that the the pure feeling of the animal right has to has to come into contact with reality um in a way that wounds it there has to be a story a kind of undoing or there has to be a a contextualization something like that and and you know what i said earlier about spirituality being the use of the imagination to get closer to reality i think what it is right it's using these representations using stories that are truer than our natural defenses. So our natural defenses are, are wanting to maybe defend our symbolic self the same way that our, our, our teeth and our arms would defend our physical self. 
And it's, it's pretty nasty. It's pretty violent. You know, it's pretty dishonest when we're doing it symbolically, you know, we'll do it with projection and we'll do it with, you know, uh, sort of the whole psychoanalytic buffet, you know? Um, but I think that if you, if you do it purposefully, you know, and you figure out like, what is a, what's the truest story I can tell right now? It's always, it's always dishonest. It's always maybe not dishonest, but it's always untrue because I'm, but I'm just dropping something. Slightly, and, slightly less untrue. It's, it's, yeah, it's slightly, you're microdosing honesty, right? It's right, like, right. It's like, uh, you know, and then over time you're able to, to, to handle more and more of it. And until, until the story that you're telling about reality, the story you're telling about yourself is, is just as close to reality. Well, what did, what did Plato call it? Carving reality close to the joints, you know? You're trying to get it to where you're strong enough to bear the realest possible story. But I don't think that you ever really, maybe it's possible to escape storytelling altogether. Maybe that's possible. That, that, that was going to be my follow-up question because that has always been uh, my interpretation of enlightenment has been, uh, there's this like phrase I've used that, uh, to to win in the matrix, you tell yourself a better story. To escape the ma matrix, you uh, you strip away all stories. Um, mm. I've always thought that is effectively enlightenment when you are in that pure awareness, perpetually not uh, intermediated by these or or disillusioned by these stories. But maybe it's just the incremental, incrementally getting closer to the truth, just with higher resolution maps. We're getting closer to I, the territory. I am not enlightened and I cannot, I cannot say. It's, it's my, fun to uh, speculate about. That. It is fun to speculate. My, my sense of it is that my sense of it is that an enlightened person is not fooled by any of the stories that the mind tells to protect itself from reality. I'm not sure that there's like a total cessation of representation. I um, I think that, that, yeah, that's my guess. I that, just don't think they're fooled by reflects. it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so maybe that means like a total cessation of thought or narration or, or whatever the case might be. I think some people, um, some people claim that. And then some I've heard, you know, Zen masters who, you know, are like, of course, I still have an internal narrative, right? Um, of course, I still, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, you can look at the death poems of Zen masters that they're still representing unto their last breath. You know, they're still they're still uh, affirming the the illusoriness of the world right right up to the end. You know, so I, I don't I don't think that um, the I don't think that the sort of Wittgensteinian dishonesty of of representation is the thing that enlightenment is free from right i think it's sort of like the self self-deceiving right but again I, what do i know nothing yeah you know no i, I agree <laughs> one of the other concepts that you talk a fair amount about is this notion of courage and in fact you said that courage is probably the only true cure for anxiety um it, uh, to pull another quote here, you've said that not the absence of fear, but the ability to accept and bear, bear your anxieties without distraction, defense, or delusion. What is courage and why is that kind of the foundation uh, to this awakening, if, if that's the right term to use here? I don't, I don't know that it is necessarily because I don't, I don't know. I don't really hold up awakening as like the, the, the telos of, is that right? I don't know. Well, or insert your I, your preferred term there that courage is is driving towards or in service. Yeah, of. I I just I don't want to give the impression that I'm I'm trying to teach others to be enlightened. Uh, I'm only talking about sort of what I what I know as getting getting as close to my experience of the truth as I can. Sure. Um, but I want to be very clear about that. I I don't you know I don't make any claims to enlightenment. Enlightening maybe. You know, but, but I'm not, um, I'm not any more or less of a Buddha than you, you know, 
Um, courage is, I'm going to say something very woo. Courage is the bridge between the bad, like the negative vibrations, and the lower vibrations and the higher vibration. Um, you know, you're ashamed of yourself until you realize what you, what you actually did that was wrong. And then you're, you feel guilty. Right. And, and you feel guilty until you draw the boundaries correctly at who did what wrong. And then you're angry. Right. And then you can use that anger and you can stay stuck down there forever. If you want, that's fine. Um, or at some point you can say, I'm going to use this anger internally. I'm going to say, fuck this shit. I don't want to be here. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to cast that at myself, but I'm going to ask when I get angry, what am I defending? What's the value? What's, what's, you know, it is, uh, there's nothing immoral about protecting what's valuable to you and protecting what, what you're grateful for. So what am I protecting? And very often, right. Uh, there's, there's this, well, I should have said fear is, is underneath shame even. But very often, right, there's this real, all boundaries and consciousness are, are made of fear, fundamentally. They're made of, of this. And so some of them you can overcome by sucking it up and, and doing the thing even while you're shaking. And that's courage. That's absolutely courage, you know. But I like to think of, 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 uh, I like to think of courage as sort of the highest manifestation of anger. Like, like fear is frozenness. Anger is the movement of fear and courage is saying like, I'm not going to let you destroy this thing. I'm not going to let fear hold me back. I'm going to move. I'm going to act. And that's moving the fear and it's changing it. It's alchemizing it. And I think that courage the, is, is what that is. It's spinning it up into anger and spinning it up into action and movement. Um, which is a, which is a defiance of the natural state of fear and the natural things that fear wants you to do, right. Which is shut down or run away or, or whatever. Um, like we talked about earlier, you know, like spirituality such as it is, is, is being able to tell a better story, be more skillful with the natural feelings you've got, the natural instincts you've got. And courage is, is the most beautiful expression of fear that I know of. Because you're terrified if you're being courageous, right? You're scared if you're being courageous. That's, that's, there's no other way to get there. Mm. Um, but it's an art, it's a virtuous expression of it. It's an artistic expression of, it, you know. And is uh, exposure therapy in your experience a practice for kind of training that courage muscle or, or kind of forcing your hand at it? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Exposure therapy is the, I, I, well, I'll say it. It's the best thing to come out of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, it's now the gold standard for treating anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder and, and many other things. Um, there's still, I, of course, psychoanalytic psychotherapy can do wonders at, with three or four years. You don't always have three or four years, you know? And, and if that's the case and you're afraid of spiders and you're so afraid of spiders, you can't go to work because occasionally there's a spider in the corner of the, the wall. And you decide one day I'm going to go down to my basement and I'm going to look at pictures of spiders on my computer, even though it makes me want to puke. And even though everything goes cold and I sweat and I, and I can't, you know, breathe and whatever. And then I'm going to look at it for five seconds and I'm going to shut the damn laptop and I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to go burn off that energy. And then the next day you do it for 10 seconds and the next day you do it for 10 minutes or whatever, right? You build up little by little. And what you're doing, your, your nervous system physically is actually like building new dendrites, building new connect, not dendrites, building new connections between things, you know? Um, and, and, um, and pretty soon, you know, before you know it, you're like, you're, you can go to, you can go and, and trap a spider and bring it outside because your wife told you to do that instead of killing it. And, and, um, and you did that because little by little, you exposed yourself to this fear and, and showed yourself that it won't destroy you. It can't destroy you. It's just, it's just a feeling, you know? Um, I think that like, 
this is this is tricky because most of most of like well certainly eastern philosophy and and certainly what's in vogue in psychotherapy right now is to be extremely gentle to be like and let things naturally unfold right and you don't force it and you don't you know you don't go you don't go in and and you know i mean cbt is very unpopular for this reason i would say that generally speaking like in our culture where there is a an excess of young energy or masculine energy um which is in most which is in most places i would say um maybe not the west coast as much but certainly here in phoenix right. um there's this kind of internalized um idea of sort of masculine what the masculine thing to do is the right thing to do right it's an it's internalized it's reflexive right and for for somebody who's internalized that which many of us have um then that really gentle yin learning to receive learning to open learning to to move with um energy is like such an important corrective you know if someone's problem is an excess of yin, they need, yeah, they need more masculinity. They need more um, to hell with what my feelings say. I'm going to do the right thing. You know, they need more courage. They need more virtue. Right. Um, but it's, there's two, it's two paths to the same right. thing, you know. Um maybe uh getting back to some of the stuff we were talking about pre exposure therapy um you raised this question in one of your your substack posts uh and i think you went on to answer it to some degree at the end of the post but i wanted to bring it up as a topic of conversation here the question was how do we condition human beings in such a way that they can one day find their way back to freedom uh, which I think is fascinating because uh, being born into society necessitates uh, some amount of conditioning. Maybe we can we can limit that on the margins, uh, but you're you're going to be conditioned to be to participate in society. Um, you have to. So I'm I'm curious how you think we can structure this in a way that people can find their way back to freedom. And I I know as an aside here, you wrote elsewhere that uh, you're trying to, or you I think you said this on a podcast. You're trying to leave your son breadcrumbs that he can follow back out of conditioning uh, when the time comes. I love that word, breadcrumbs. Um, mm. So what does that look like? How do we do that in practice? Well, I can tell you how I did it with my son. Sure. Maybe that's the most practical and easiest way to do it. But still, jury's, jury's still out because he's got nine years before his prefrontal cortex is finished. But... um. There, you can't really get outside of your own identity in a meaningful way prior to um, your brain finishing cooking. Um, there's just no way to do it. And, and in, in a way, right, this happens for most people, 25, 25, 26, 230. Kind of after your prefrontal cortex finishes maturing and you go through what the Greeks called the period of ashes, um, which is sort of like, oh my God, I've been living this way. Um, then it kind of takes, there's a bunch of years to kind of start undoing all that conditioning, you know? And this is kind of like taking the salt out of the, out of the salami so that it becomes edible. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you're curing, curing meat. Um, not that we're curing human beings, but, um, <laughs> but, um, you could, you could sort of think of it that way. It, a, a human being needs to be conditioned to be safe. You know, we're not, we're not rational creatures. We're not safe creatures. You look at our history, it's very clear what we're capable of. And, and, and all you have to do is spend any time around a two-year-old to know what you're capable of without any shame, without any guilt, without any fear, without any, they need it. It's, it's necessary because the brain, their brains can't comprehend, um, you know, oneness with all things. And, and I mean, that's all they are in, in a way. Right. Um, right. but, but by that, by that point, there's already, 
Um, they just, it's just not possible to not condition human beings. I don't need to put a too fine of a point on that. So the question, the question then, like, so what we did, and I think I came around to this once my kid was a little older and I wish I'd been able to start younger, but what I basically always did was leave a little bit of, of, of critical thinking and leave a little trail of critical thinking and really encourage him, um, to be as to be as, as really honest and arrive at his own um, interpretations of things as many times as I could, you know, when his interpretations weren't going to work, unfortunately, it's just, you just got to override it and you just got to be like, this sucks, you know, but to the, to, but I got to do this to you. Like, I'm sorry, but to the extent that it's possible, really giving him the room, giving him the guidance. So not just leaving him on his own to figure the world out on his own. Um, but, but, but leaving him the room to really come to his own conclusions about things, uh, I think is that trail of breadcrumbs. I think it's, it, you know, it's making sure that the person, the young person has the skill to step back, even when they're 16, even when they're 17, even when they're, they're whatever, uh, young and, and take a look at their identity as it's constructed. You know, who is your help group, you know? Um, how do you define yourself, right? Is it, is it by what you're not? Is it by what you're afraid of and disgusted by it? Yes. You know, are those people people? Yeah. Do you, does that mean you have to like them and they're fine and they're good? No. Right. That's your out group. It's okay. You know, but, but bear it in mind, right? I think, I think the, the best example that I can think of when it comes to this is like, so I tried to raise my kid like a combat medic, right? So you have soldiers and soldiers will go out and they'll blow anything up, right? And, and it's us versus them and it's bad versus, you know, it's good versus bad and all that. A combat medic will go out onto the battlefield and will shoot somebody. And if he's, and if there's nobody on his side is hurt, he will go over and pull the bullet out of the person that he, that he just put that bullet in and he will sew that wound up. And because, because he, he serves humanity, right? He serves a story that's larger than Israel versus Palestine or America versus Iraq or whatever versus his side. Um, does that mean that he's going to like put him, his own life in danger to save somebody from the other side? No. Does that mean he's going to be stupid about it? Like he's not going to have an identity or a sense of self or anything? No, of course not. Right. But, but it is, does it mean he doesn't want his side to win? Of course not. He wants his side to win. You know, um, what it means though, is if there's an opportunity to serve a higher good, then of course you take it. Don't, don't outsource your thinking. Think for yourself. Yeah. Uh, and provide those kind of guardrails for your, yeah. I think that's the, the right advice and something I've been thinking about. I only have a two and a half year old, but as she starts to, to develop uh, her own, I mean, she has opinions about things, but maybe oh, yeah. not in the way you and I do. But uh, once she gets to that point, um, helping her think for herself, absolutely. Um, kind of maybe adjacent to this, but maybe also uh, kind of branching off in, in an entirely new direction. Um, it's, it's not enough to see your conditioning or the illusion of self uh, in kind of this, this process of truth realization. I think on one hand, there is uh, recognizing that there's something else beneath, but then there's another step to this process, which is actually acting on it. Um, and in a reply to one of your tweets, somebody had said this phrase that I really like. Um, I don't have the handle, so apologies to them. But they had said, I'm cursed to be aware of my swatting hand, unaware of how to stop swatting. Mm. Uh, and, and you had responded by saying, first, cease from evil. Um, so, so I'm curious here. I'm, I'm packaging and trying to maybe create a through line through a lot, but there isn't. Uh, but how do we stop that swatting and what, it is, what is your definition of evil in that context and why start there? I was, I was quoting the Buddha. Um, do nothing, seek wisdom. Um, instead of swatting away at the conditioning, just watch yeah. it and get it, get a map, start to finish. 
You know, first I think this, then I feel shame. So I think this, which causes me to do this, which leads me to do this, which leads me to think this. So get, get the highest quality, highest detailed map of the entire loop that you can, because it's almost always on, you know. Um, and then yeah. once you really see it, then, then say, well, how is this making me suffer? How is this making me suffer? Right. Where, how is this causing you suffering? And once that's evident, there's not a whole lot you have to do because it's obvious. Um, if it's not obvious, you might need a more detailed map or you may have some nervous system damage. You know, you may need some exposure there. You may need, if the yin doesn't work, try the yang, you know, but, but when you have a, a kind of when you have a, a good model of how a, a karmic loop works or how a trauma loop works or just a behavioral reenactment, how, you know, pick your modality, um, you can decide where to um, intervene. You know, you can decide, well, okay, if I want to quit drinking, do I take all the alcohol out of my house? Do I, do I uh, you know, stop going out with friends? Do I uh, use willpower to swap my own hand? Do I, I mean, what, you know, it's like, you have all these different options, right? You can kind of decide where in the cycle that you want to, that you want to um, intervene. Uh, you can do that with, with any behavioral and act. It's a lot easier to do than quitting alcohol with most things. Um, but, but take, just take a look, you know, get, get a really high definition, high fidelity picture. Don't, don't often do that. Often just, just react mm -hmm. uh, as is the, I mean, me too. the definition and, ah. Yeah, right, right. You know, uh, before we started this conversation, I mentioned to you one of the things I really liked uh, about your your ideas and your writing was that you draw on so many different disciplines and practices. It's not like you just subscribe to to Buddhism. You use uh, your experience early on growing up in like a cultish environment, your experience being in the Marines, your experience with uh, exposure therapy, and then all of these other um kind of practices and lenses that you've participated in and seen the world through. Uh, how have you managed to go from these very controlled ideological environments early on in uh, kind of your upbringing between, again, like the, this cultish upbringing as well as in the Marines, which is all about break you down and rebuild you as a part of the unit, as I understand cult. It, have not been a part of it. Right. It's, it's uh, America's warrior cult. That? I don't I say that with affection, but it's America's warrior cult. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To to an end. Um, I mean, there, there's a purpose to it. Uh, how do you go from that to having this much more open ended way of thinking where you're not subscribing to a particular ideology, but drawing on them? Uh, and, and maybe how have you seen some kind of obviously there's been some benefits to your development of self as a result of that. So curious if you could touch on that. Sure. This was, so I, this was, uh, uh, well, my mentor really helped me with that. Um, my mentor was a, a, a Zen Roshi and a psychotherapist. And I, I did therapy with him for uh, like two and a half years working on a, a developmental issue. And one of the ways that we addressed that developmental wound, a developmental trauma that I had was with a lot of meditation and a lot of mindfulness. And, um, after I, I resolved that, um, and, and really did a lot of work and a lot of change, I left therapy and was like, you know, post, see you later. Thank you so much. But, uh, but I was constantly thinking about the internal change and, and what had happened. And I went back to him six months later and I was like, look, I don't want to do therapy anymore. Um, I think I want to seek enlightenment. Can you help me? You know? And he was like, I don't know. Um, but he's, but there was this twinkle in his eye, you know, um, and what this guy did for the next five years was frustrate every single attempt that I made to define myself or figure out who I was, or he, he used this, this, which is a very, a very common, uh, I guess like teaching mode, but it was just constantly like, you know, referring me back to myself, but always confounding any idea that I had about myself. So whenever I would... Could you give an example? Sure. If, if I 
if I would say something that gave evidence that I was, that I was identified with something, right? Whether that's, I mean, identified with anything. Are you identified with your body? Are you identified, oh, you just called yourself a man? Oh, you just called yourself an American? Oh, you just called yourself a liberal? You just called, whatever, right? Um, he would be like, yeah, okay, well, what is, you know, but what does yourself say? What's, where's yourself in this? Where is that? And it was the constant thing where it's like, well, I just told you that, right? And he'd be like, <laughs> and then I'm, I'm sitting there, now I have to question, am I this thing? Am I this? Am I this? And, you know, years of, of, of going in there and having the stories that I'm telling about myself picked apart logically. Well, you can't be this, right? See, because you're the thing that has this. So if you're the thing that has this, then what are you? God damn it. All right, I'll go back to the drawing board. Right. And, you, and you do this over and over and over, board, over and over and over again until you realize like, um, oh, there's not fucking anything there. You know? And then you have this moment uh, where there's nothing between you and the enormity of existence. And it's one of the most terrifying experiences that you can have. Um, and in, in that moment, that infinite sort of vulnerability where there's no stories, there's no, you can't, you, and, and you've been made too honest to lie to yourself in that moment. So you can't retreat from it. So you have to, at that point, you have to be like, you have to say what feels true, no matter how insane or, or, or whatever it's, it's like, and, and what you start speaking into existence and what you start living at that point is the truest possible thing that you can, you know, um, why is it that this can't be intellectualized? Uh, and I, I think I kind of already know the answer to this, but would love your take. I, on one hand, I can tell you, I get it. I'm not my biases, expectations, uh, identities, et cetera. But that does me no good. I'm no, I'm no closer to this like uh, kind of oneness with the void, if that's the, the right way to explain it, or understanding that there, is, there isn't that boundary there. Um, so what is it about this repeated exploration and uh, kind of shooting down of all these identities that gets you there, that intellectualizing it can't? Maybe the answer is in the question. The the intellectualizing well, is not yeah. the experience. Yeah, because intellectual because the intellectualization is still a defense against the experience. The the mm. the experience itself is um is prior. Yeah, it's outside of that. It's outside of this is not, I should say, that is sort of like um uh that was not like pure identification with the void. That was like a moment of like pure, got it, uh, sensory existence. Like I, like I, I have no mental shields beyond what I can sense is true in this moment. And the enormity of your mortality and the enormity of, of being itself is just really overwhelming. But that's, that's not quite like, you know, Buddhist enlightenment or, or anything like that. That's more like, onto genesis that's more like at that moment there there the categories of being that you begin to use are one that be, they belong to you they have to belong to you because you can't cloak yourself uh in stories made by other people very long anymore before they get very itchy and you're like i didn't make this i can't this is the <laughs> work you know what i mean um, I it's, like that. it's the first step in becoming very strange. Very strange. <laughs> as, as perceived by the outside world or you yeah. feel it yourself as well. Well, you add strange to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I never know what's going to come out of me. Did you feel that, uh, even throughout this conversation that the words are more emergent than, uh, Gabe 15 years ago? Would, would have been saying i yeah. mean obviously your your level of understanding has evolved since then that's it it's, they're it kind was of coming the same from a words. different place it's just I, before i gave myself credit for them interesting 
uh, and on now this, it's like on this... it's like it's like dropping a dipper into the void, and you know. Oh, that's beautiful. It's just coming up. On this note, one of the things I really appreciate about your writing as well is that it's not this kind of dry, of course, it's not going to be academic, but it's not uh, dry, either kind of psychological or spiritual talk. Um, it's much more poetic uh, and and it contains a lot of metaphors. Um, and I know you'll probably say you don't know where that comes from or it's not me based on what you just said, but... Uh, where do you think that that comes from? Because even other people at kind of your level of understanding don't talk in this way. Um, is that something that's always been kind of innate to you? You've been a good communicator and writer, or is that something that's just come through practice? I can I can tell I I can tell you a story about it that's not going to get all of it, but I'm I'm from I'm from a a, a very religious people and and a very smooth talking family, um, so that's genetic. Um, and then, and then, uh, uh, I had a, a real intense love for visual art growing up, but was not great at it. And, and what I was good at was writing. Um, and so I would often, my friends would be artists and I would, and I would write, you know, we'd make comics together and I'd do the writing and the art. And eventually I fell in love with, with writing and I, I, um, I got a degree in literary theory and, um, uh, worked in publishing for a while. I, words are are a, a passion, a passion for me, and so it's not so. Um, so I, there's certainly some training there, and there's certainly some some pedigree there. Um, you know, but it shows. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I it feels yeah, really. I, I appreciate um, the output. Yeah, you got it. It feels like it feels like a real privilege. Um, it's like the best thing for me that came out of the pandemic. The pandemic was obviously awful. Um, but that time in lockdown, like really, um, really gave me the time to like, get so clear about so many of these things and, and, and to recenter or maybe to center for the first time, um, spirituality as the most important thing in my life and, and to put it there and, and, um, and that's. Yeah, ultimately, I'm grateful for it. Ultimately, I'm grateful that happened. You know, it was an awful cost, but it, yeah, but there was a bright. That was that was the bright side for me. Silver lining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've uh, the as as an aside, quickly, I find in these kinds of conversations that we we because we're trying to get to the root of things that you end up butting up against or or kind of pointing at the same topics over and over again so i apologize if my questions appear redundant um but you've used uh the capital q quality word uh that i think you you've drawn some inspiration from uh persig's idea in the zen and art of uh motorcycle maintenance i think you even reference it mm -hmm. um have you what what is quality to you uh, and is there something you'd liken it to? And then why is that like the, the central or the most important thing in your own words? My, my mentor, uh, Samuel Stem was a student of Robert Persig's at the university of Montana. So, oh, wow. so this idea what is connection. important to the, I don't know, it's not a lineage, but the provenance. Um, Quality, what is quality? You know it when you see it. You know it. Um, I, I, well, I guess what I would say, what I would say is this, and it's, and it's so, I mean, it's kind of a, maybe it's a cliche. I don't know if that's, if that's the case or not. It feels cliche coming out of my mouth. Um, you already know what the right thing to do is. You don't need anybody to tell you. You always know what the right thing to do is. It's, you can always ask right here. Whether it turns out to be what you wanted or not is immaterial. And it's all the surrounding noises and forces and conditioning, et cetera, that, uh, that makes you kind of put a governor on that or, or put on the brakes and not go and do that thing. No, don't, don't do enough nothing to be able to hear it. That was concise. I like that. 
Um, well, I know you have to jump. I'll ask my, my final question that I asked to everyone. Um, to turn it back around on you, what's one question you would leave me and listeners with whether to think about or act on? What are you keeping secret that you think nobody can know or the whole thing will follow? Great call to action. And is there Incredible. some way, is there some safe way to unburden yourself of it? Can you expand on the safe component there? Well, the there are people to whom it's safe to unburden yourself and people to whom it's not. Got it. Yeah. Uh, and you know already. Um, right. To go back to, to your comment on quality. Yeah. Excellent. Gabe, well, this has been great. It's given me so much to think about. I really enjoyed the kind of the research and preparation process on this. There's so much great writing that I think I'll also include in the show notes. Uh, but your, uh, your kind of pinned meta thread at the top of your profile and then your, your sub stack would highly recommend people um, go back and read those. But uh, this is a blast. Thank you for your time, sir. Thanks, Spencer. You're a great interviewer. It was a pleasure.